the Future Proof Podcast from Newstalk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, we're going to be asking, is it time to retire the idea of humans in space? We'll be speaking to Britain's astronomer, Royal Martin Rees, and author and astrophysicist, Donald Goldsmith, who argue we should be now deciding to end astronauts. First, though, it's time to look back at some of the week's stories. If you'd like to email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can tweet your reactions to what we're talking about at Newstalk Science. Um, we're joined by Dr. Jessevin Fairfield from NUI Galway and Dr. Lara Duncan. You're both very welcome. Our first story has to do with locked-in syndrome, uh, Lara, a, a, a new technology to perhaps allow patients and their families to communicate. Yeah, th- this is a, a really... It's a really emotional story, um, actually, and really fascinating from a technological and biological point of view. It was um, just published in Nature Communications, and it's based around a gentleman who has ALS, um, which is essentially a motor neuron disease, and it causes him to become progressively more paralyzed, so he no longer has control over his voluntary muscles. He's a very young man um, during the study. At some point, it was a couple of years that it took, but at one point, he was only 36 when he became fully paralyzed. Um, he has a four-year-old child. Again, this is during the study. The, the child will have obviously aged since then. Um, and it's it's a really emotive scenario. So he's at home um, and before he becomes fully paralyzed, so there's a thing called completely locked in syndrome where you no longer even have control over the direction you turn your eyes. So that means you have absolutely no control over any voluntary muscle. So just before that happened, they asked him whether or not he'd like to have um, two stimulators put into his brain so it's actual brain surgery and he consented to this so that when he did become completely locked in they were able to test whether or not he could communicate with his family and this was I mean a a labor of science and love because the amount of times these researchers went to the house and the hours they spent with this man over and over again testing it and checking whether or not it worked but eventually what they could do was by, by auditory stimulation they could give him options and he could then use his brain to stimulate these sensors and he could indicate what letter he wanted to tell them. So slowly, with a letter every minute, he was able to spell out full sentences. So this is a man who was not able to communicate with his family at all um, and then he was able to start saying sentences. So uh, like the, a lot of them, it's, it's actually, it's, it's really emotional. So he says things like, you know, um, mom head massage. He wanted his mom to give him a head massage. He said, first of all, head position very high from now. Everybody must use gel on my eye. He asked them to take off his shirt at night, but leave his socks on. He asked them for a beer, even though he's being fed directly into a tube in his stomach. He asked his four-year-old son whether or not he wanted to watch a Disney movie with him. He asked mm. for goulash soup and sweet pea soup. It's it's really fascinating, and the accuracy is phenomenal. Now, there's days that it couldn't work. There's days they tested him and he wasn't able, so for whatever reason. But it's, it's kind of proof, really, that people who have completely locked-in syndrome are still cognitively well. They're still in there, and that maybe they can communicate and this is groundbreaking really this is the first time a completely locked in a person with completely locked in syndrome has been able to communicate externally and of course we've talked about this condition many times that the idea that you you can't tell someone if you're in discomfort if um it, 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 how you're feeling and that and that that 
that could continue, you know, depending on what the, what the thing was. You know, maybe you're faced the wrong way and the sun is in your eyes every day and people just haven't noticed because you can't communicate. To, to have that freedom to be able to, to do that, uh, let alone communicate your feelings to your family and, and your wishes as the, the condition continues. I mean, it's absolutely huge. Um, it seems to me that this is sort of technology that we should be finding a way to, to get it into the patients of, of those who, who are like this man. Um, but is it possible to do that if they haven't been trained on it in the first place? I mean, this took like just hours of training. It's it's almost insurmountable, the, the, the effort that went into this. So it's right. not something that's practical for everybody yet. But that doesn't mean it's not something that could happen down the line. I mean, most family members are, are very dedicated to people, so they could train them. All right. Our second story, Jessamine, has to do with Greenland. Yeah, this is a potential answer to a mystery that has plagued archaeologists for a very long time around why the Norse left their settlement in Greenland, um, which was active for about 400 years, uh, founded in nine, the year 985. Um, and it's around the southern tip of Greenland. So if you picture like the whole gigantic landmass, it's right, right down there at the bottom. Um, and the Norse came there, established actually quite a large settlement. It was about 4,000 people at the maximum, so not just a little village. Uh, but then eventually ended up abandoning it around the year 1408. And there's always this question about why um, scientists for a long time thought that it probably had to do with, you know, in Europe at the time, there was a small ice age. And so they thought, well, maybe it got colder there as well. Uh, maybe that was what caused them to leave. And there was some supporting data for that, but not from anywhere nearby on Greenland, which is quite a large landmass. Um, and so and this, this, this so just to clarify, this tip of Greenland isn't normally covered in ice. It's not it's it's not normally covered in ice. No, it is quite close to the ice, as is everything in Greenland. Yeah. Um, and so these researchers uh, in this new study that just came out from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst um, basically looked at a new way of measuring the climate in Greenland, the, the ancient climate of looking at lake sediment samples. And basically, they were looking for two markers, one which had to do with bacteria at the time, which could be correlated to the temperature. And the other one was a marker from plant leaves that could tell us something about the humidity in the area at the time. And what they actually found is that in the area specifically of these settlements um, that were eventually abandoned by, by Norse settlers, the temperature actually didn't change that much, but it's the humidity that started gradually dropping year after year. Um, so this is interesting because it kind of suggests that rather than it just getting colder and that was what drove them away, it's actually a drought that drew them out, um, and which goes to show you as well, right, that you can have as much ice as you want and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have enough water, right? Wow. Like, I mean, it, like Antarctica is a huge desert, right? And it's covered in ice. So the issue for them wasn't necessarily the temperature. It was it was how dry it got. And this actually also correlates with other research um, in the past that had shown that in the early days of this settlement, they were very reliant on agriculture, on like, you know, cows, goats, uh, even though it was a very marginal climate. And then near the end of the Norse settlement in Greenland, they were eating a lot more like fish, stuff from the sea. Like they had really had to turn away from agriculture. And it probably also had to do with the drought, right? Is 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 it common to have a drought so close to water and ice? I mean, it can be, right? Like we're, of course, we're seeing the climate can change and that has a huge mm. impact on everything. Um, but I think especially in these more sort of marginal areas, like even in the part of the US that I'm from in the Southwest, there was a very long standing civilization for hundreds of years that then was eventually driven out by a drought because it was just like too close to being borderline. And now that is quite far away from the sea, but you know, even next to the sea, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have enough water. What what sort of um, time range are we talking about? How precise are they with this data? 
Well, they know the, the 1408 date was the last time that anyone wrote anything in that colony, right? Um, and they can look at middens, you know, basically piles of people's trash <laughs> to see when were people living there, eating stuff, um, burying people. But the, the settlers that were there and the, the Norse in general, obviously, they had a huge sort of seafaring tradition. You yeah. know, they went to Iceland, they went to Newfoundland, they settled a lot of these places. And, you know, some of those settlements stuck, some of them stuck for quite a long time, like 400 years is a pretty good track record. But if if the climate changes and it's not viable anymore, then then they would have left or died. But but um, the, the the sediment from the lake can how how accurately can they date that? That's that's actually quite accurate. Yeah, and I mean it's interesting because the previous temperature data that they had was from ice cores, um, which is also it's it's a pretty accurate measurement. But it was about a thousand kilometers to the north of the settlements, uh, right at the tip of Greenland, right. and it was it was two thousand meters higher in elevation. So not really as comparable data as this. Really interesting um, how you can sort of piece together the climate of, of uh, a time 800 years ago or 600 years ago uh, and, and, and be so accurate with it. Um, our third story, Lara, has to do with arteries. It does indeed, yes. Yeah. So this is a, a story um, from the Lancet Digital Health and it comes from Cedar sinai Medical Centre, which is a very famous medical centre in Los Angeles. Um, and essentially the the headline is kind of untrue the headline to this is that you know there's a a new artificial intelligence tool that will predict heart attacks. So that's not what's good about this story. What's good about this story is that they have taught artificial intelligence to read a particular type of scan. So when someone comes in with chest pain to the hospital and if they have a lot of factors that might put them at risk, they get a thing called an angiogram, which is where you inject dye and it goes through the coronary arteries, which is the arteries that supply the heart, and we look at whether or not there's narrowing. It's an invasive procedure. It can be sore. It can have problems with it. So there's a type of technology called a CT coronary angiogram where you go through a CT machine, which is like a CAT scan that people would often call it, and it does the same job. But it takes the radiologists at least half an hour to read every scan. They have now taught this artificial intelligence to read it in less than six seconds. And it seems to do it as accurately as the the radiologists have done. So it's really brilliant technology. It could save a huge amount of time. Now, yes, it can also predict people's risk of a heart attack, but you know, so can everybody. So so it's it's saying that if you have a certain amount of plaque, which is over 238.5 millimeters squared, so I wouldn't be too worried about the figure, then you have a seven times increased risk of a heart attack. Now, people can tell you that anyway from reading the assessment. So that's not the magic of this. The magic of this is the time saving, the manpower that will be saved. But but um, am I right in saying that we don't typically look for plaque in, in standard checkups? Isn't that right? It's another thing that we look for, even though we know it's a pretty big indicator of heart attack. It's, it's difficult. So you have to either have a, an invasive angiogram or you have to have this CTCA, which is a CT coronary angiogram. So it's a scan that does a similar job. It's not as accurate as an actual angiogram, but you would need to be displaying signs or symptoms. There needs to be a reason to look for it. I'm not going to check you, Jonathan, just because you come in and ask for it because there's downsides to checks. You know, you're going to get radiation. You're going to get potential injuries. So you don't just check everybody. But if you can do a really good and accurate CT scan, then it's definitely better than an invasive procedure, even though there is obviously radiation. All right. Our final story, Jessamine, has to do with music. Yeah, this is a really nice story about how music improves uh, well-being and quality of life, not just in one study, but actually in a review of 26 studies uh, across Australia, the UK and the US. Um, And I actually wanted to ask both of you, do either of you play a musical instrument? 
I am appallingly bad. I can't sing, I can't dance, and I cannot play anything. Um, I, I I can't. I can do like three chords in the guitar. Um, same, same, yeah, really badly. Same, <laughs> sa- same with the ukulele, and I'm I'm starting to play the piano with better success, but it, it needs a lot of okay. practice. Yeah. Yeah, well, but you probably both listen to music, right? I'm assuming from time to time. Um, (laughs) One of the things that I found really interesting about this study was that, you know, they were looking at music both on its own and as part of a therapeutic practice. Um, They found that it improves mental health quality of life, but they also found there's no difference between making music and listening to music in terms of your quality of life. So it does not have to be hard. You just put on a a few songs and that's all you need. And and when you say that's all you need, what sort of um, difference are we talking about in terms of quality of life? So it's it's similar to the effects from exercise or weight loss. So if you don't want to do those, just put on some music. Now, there's no optimal dose. <laughs> Lara, the doctor, but... is laughing here. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm like, can I stop eating well and, and don't go for a run and just listen to a song? No, no, no. no. I was expecting <laughs> you to debunk this and say that she's talking nonsense. I was saying it in a sarcastic sense. You definitely can't stop eating well and exercising. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of mental health, music can play a big role, which is well, very Well, there cool. you go. Very, very interesting. Okay, great. Uh, Dr. Jasmine Fairfield from NUI Galway and Dr. Lara Dungan, thanks very much for joining us. On the way, is it time to retire the astronaut programs? Now, for many people, the greatest human achievement of the 20th century happened on July 20th, 1969, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon. A large portion of those people probably hope for a similar spectacle on Mars in the coming decades. But aside from it being cool, is there any real reason to send humans to these far-flown places? Well, Britain's astronomer royal Martin Rees and astrophysicist and science writer Donald Goldsmith consider this very question in their new book, The End of Astronauts, Why Robots Are the Future of Exploration. They join me now. Uh, You're both very welcome. Um, This is a subject that's been talked about for for quite some time, Martin, and I'm wondering why you felt it needed a book, because I know you've spoken about it uh, yourself uh, quite a bit. Um, What is is the main thrust here? Well, there is growing interest in this. Of course, we know about the billionaires, Messrs. Bezos and Musk, who are spending a huge amount to send people into space. So that has led to greater public interest. So there is a revival. Uh, But the reason we feel that the case for sending humans is not so strong is that the Apollo program is a long time ago and robotics has of course advanced hugely since then and so our story is that most of the practical tasks which uh, humans were needed for exploring the planets fabricating large structures in space uh, can be done by robots far more cheaply and in particular if you want to go as far as Mars Uh, then uh, a 200-day journey requires huge provisions if you send people there, even on a one-way trip. And uh, the robot just hibernates all the way and doesn't need to come back. Indeed. But um, a lot of the time when we talk about, you know, justifying the investment in space, we talk about all of the spin-off technologies that have come from uh, our exploration into the cosmos, right? And um, if we are looking at how to preserve humans in space, uh, how to keep them safe from radiation, how to grow crops in space, isn't it likely that this uh, um, journey into the unknown is likely to have similar offshoots in terms of innovation, new materials and so on? Is, is that uh, a good reason to continue thinking about humans in space? Well, I'll leave this to Don, but 
in my view, it's uh, not a very strong uh, motive because you've got to ask, why do we want to send the people there anyway? Don? It's rather a circular argument to say we should investigate how to grow crops in space if we're not going to send people. And also the spinoff, which has been a, an argument ever since the Apollo program or even before, is a very expensive way to do innovation. You may get some innovation, famous innovation, which they found tang the drink for the astronauts. But, you know, it, it costs an awful lot to go that route. Indeed. And um, I suppose one of the points of this book is that robots have been improving over and over again. Can you give me an idea of this development arc? I mean, how much of a difference is it now from, say, 20 years ago, the sort of robots that we could put in Mars now that, that we, we could have put on the moon then? I know, I know the Apollo mission was, was longer than that, but, but uh, just to give us an idea of the 20-year the um, span. Let's even go back farther to the Viking landings on Mars. They're a wonderful little laboratory. They landed on Mars. They scooped up the soil and they tested it rather uh, simply, but they tested it. They couldn't move, however, and they were stuck with wherever they were, and their results were very limited. You couldn't ask them to do any more. Then we had robots in the last decade that could land on Mars and release a rover, which could go around very carefully because every little motion had to be guided from Earth to avoid running into rocks. And now with Perseverance, we have a robot that has all sorts of sensitive cameras and a computer specially designed for the cameras and a system that allows it to do a lot without human intervention in terms of finding its way once the general path has been plotted. So uh, the future holds, obviously, the prospect of robots with much more abilities to land on Mars, spend years studying the terrain, travel for many, many kilometers, and it's sort of unbounded. Our machines are getting better and better, but our bodies are not. This is true. We, we traditionally associated um, spacecraft with, um, with a lack of motion. They landed and that's where they were. Now, now they can move. And most recently, we've seen drone flights on, on Mars. And so I, I suppose that the, the robots are really performing quite well. Is, would that be an argument for you, Martin, that the, the robots are, are being so well engineered that they, they don't need humans anymore? Well, they don't need them in order to move around. But of course, the next step, which is, uh, I think, the important one, which is going to come, is that they will have enough AI to be able to do some geology. Uh, the uh, robot Perseverance can, as Don said, move around. It's not yet quite able to uh, decide what's a specially interesting place to, uh, to dig. Um, but if we extrapolate the development of AI, it'll only be 10 or 20 years before it will have the capability of the average human geologist. And that's the important uh, step in... Do you really believe that? Because, I mean, certainly as someone who's been um, looking at the advancements we've seen in robots, it seems like a terribly slow progress. Do you believe that we, we'll, in 20 years we'll have a robot that can do as good science as a, as a human on another planet? Well, maybe not quite such good original science, but yes, I, I do believe that it'll be able to uh, uh, decide because remember we have uh, uh, robots already with AI which can uh, look at um, x-rays of lungs and decide better than a human uh, whether you've got lung cancer or not. That sort of thing's already possible by AI. So I think it's entirely realistic to think that they can uh, do as much by observing the Martian surface as any geologist could do. Of course, being the Astronomer Royal, you are um, someone who has spent their life communicating science to the public. Uh, and as someone who teaches how to communicate science, I know that um, 
inanimate objects are much more difficult to get the public behind, which is why the, you know, we hark back to the times of Apollo and while we celebrate um, curiosity and other, uh, other amazing devices, I'm wondering, is there a, a fear that the public will become disengaged with the astronomy and the exploration of space if there isn't a, a human face or a human in a, in a rocket um, to, I suppose, put our hopes and dreams into? Well, can I say two things? First, um, I think the public's more interested in astronomy than ever before. It's fascinated by the pictures of deep space, by exoplanets and all that, and we're not going to send humans there. Uh, so I don't agree with that point. Um, but uh, I secondly think that um, uh, we are not completely opposed to humans going into space. We just don't think any public money should be spent on it. And uh, I personally um, would cheer on Elon Musk, if uh, uh, he does what he says he'll do and uh, die on Mars, but not on impact. He's now 50 years old, and when he's 90, that might be feasible. Um, and the reason for leaving this to the private sector is not simply that then taxpayers don't pay, but that the private adventurers can accept higher risks and cut costs. If you send civilians into space, publicly funded, then you've got to be risk averse. And the shuttle failed twice in 135 launches. That's less than 2% failure rate. But those two failures were big traumas for the American people. But on the other mm. hand, there are lots of test pilots and sports people who'd be happy to accept a 10% risk. And so they're the kind of guys who will go to Mars at private expense. And mm. I think we would all, all cheer them on. If I may uh, throw in a little bit here. Uh, <laughs> That's all very well for the initial explorers. I rather admire these guys, of course. Uh, but on the other hand, Jeff, Jeff Bezos, for example, wants to colonize space and Elon Musk wants to colonize Mars. I'm not in favor of letting the private sector take over other celestial yeah. objects and do what they will with them. They also want yeah. to mine the asteroids. Another aspect is the military one, the competition. What if the Chinese send men or, or humans there? What are we going to do? This is a traditional space race with the Russians. There are a lot of reasons to send people. It's just they're not scientifically based. It's not very easy for us to argue about them. So let's talk about the the, the quality of science that non-human involved uh, space exploration can provide. Can you talk to me a little bit about the difference in cost between humans and machines and, and what they can actually do, uh, Don? Well, it's a little difficult to assess the cost because, you know, when you're talking about launches, how much of the development costs and the ongoing costs do you fold in? But there's roughly a factor of 10, at least, between sending humans on a mission and machines for the obvious wow. reason that you have to supply them with all sorts of things. It only gets worse and worse the longer the journey. The new NASA space rocket is supposed to cost $4 billion a launch, prorated over its lifetime, which is so immense you can hardly believe it. But there it is. Elon Musk, of course, can do it more cheaply. There's no doubt. I mean, naively, it's sort of a slam dunk, as we say over here. Humans take a lot of work to, to support them. I'm all in favor of humans. I'm, I'm a human myself most days, and I identify with them like anyone else. But, you know, the real question is, how much do you want to spend in excess? And maybe the answer is you do. Also, maybe that's the only way you get funding. In the old days, they said, no Buck Rogers, no Bucks. But nobody knows who <laughs> Buck Rogers is anyway these days. <laughs> Yeah. I, I remember Book Rogers very well. Um, I, I have to say, mostly though, repeats. Um, uh, Martin, can I ask you what the space agencies of the world think about this um, th this idea of, of essentially 
uh, stepping down humans from space exploration. I, I, do most uh, of the decision makers generally agree that this is the way forward? Well, I think the Chinese are still in favor of uh, a human program for prestige reasons. Um, I think uh, uh, those in the West will be responsive to public opinion, and we're trying to shift public opinion. But if I could add a footnote to what Don's just said um, uh, about exploration, the humans cost far more to send to Mars. But of course, we want to explore far further. And the moons of Jupiter, for instance, um, and uh, Saturn and the atmosphere of, uh, uh, of Jupiter are very exciting. And we can Im imagine huge numbers of miniaturized probes, a whole flotilla of them being sent to uh, those outer planets to understand uh, what their surfaces are like and if there's any life there. Uh, but no one is thinking in the foreseeable future of sending people that far. Uh, so uh, for Mars, it's feasible to send people, but uh, we want to explore and do our science in a far more extended area than we can send humans to. Um, Don, Martin makes a point. There are some people in some um, countries, I suppose, that uh, realise the marketing potential of human space exploration. And I think uh, some members of the American administration over the last number of years might fall into this category. I'm wondering, um, do you think it would be individuals that will make the decision on whether or not space exploration continues for humans? I'm talking about people like, for example, Donald Trump or Boris Johnson as, a, as, a, as an attempt to unite a nation, decide to announce a mission that isn't necessarily scientifically um, uh, the, the best option um, and and will will the scientific community um, in, in America and other countries be able to say, look, this is just a bad idea? Well, you know, uh, first of all, those two gentlemen haven't done a great job so far in uniting anyone behind anything, I would say, especially in space exploration. Uh, but I, I do believe that humans are naturally going to want to see humans in space. It would take some careful thought to say, as a government or people who present a government's uh, ideas, haha, that we don't really want that because it costs too much. We can do even better with the machines. Uh, it just isn't going to fly completely. There will be huge numbers of people who say, it doesn't make any sense to me. We must go. People talk about our destiny. And we won't be able to get beyond that uh, easily, or maybe at all, uh, in terms of public support. The rich individual or something else. But as far as the public goes, I think we're destined best for a long debate and it's our hope to contribute some to that debate. Uh, of course, the, the the real crisis that we're facing right now is is climate change, um, rather than you know what we're sending into space. But of course, they are related in a way. Uh, the fact that every rocket launch is a huge um, footprint, not just in terms of the fuel it uses, but also in terms of uh, the, the the materials that go into making these rockets. Martin, um, do you think uh, that the argument is? is very strong for robots rather than humans in space on an environmental stand? Um, I think that's a minor thing because um, uh, each jumbo jet on every flight has more than 100 tonnes of fuel, which is about what one of these rockets has. And so the number of uh, rockets we're going to launch is tiny compared to the number of jumbo jets. So I think it's trivial in that context. No, um, but, 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 we, but we do also, as you say, we develop a huge amount of... Um, machinery and equipment around humans and all of those require a, a, a huge amount of uh, energy output and, and, and manpower, I suppose. Um, 
Well, I think it's, it's a misdirection of funds um, as well as of energy, um, but uh, and a misdirection of talent. Uh, so that's why we should leave it to the private sector. And thinking of climate, of course, there are some people, and, and Musk is among them, and my late colleague Stephen Hawking, say that uh, we need to eventually have mass migration to Mars to escape the Earth's problems and the Earth's climate. Uh, and that's a very dangerous delusion, in our opinion, because uh, um, dealing with climate change is difficult, but it's far easier than terraforming Mars, which yeah. is now as uninhabitable as the top of Everest, the South Pole, or the bottom of the ocean. And not many people want to go and live there. Well, uh, Martin Rees, uh, Britain's Astronomer Royal, and Donald Goldsmith, this astronomer and science writer, uh, authors of The End of Astronauts, Why Robots Are the Future of Exploration. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. And that's it for this week's podcast. Thanks to Aidan McKelvey, Simon Keane, and Jojo Cardozo on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Thank <music> you.